are so honored that you're here with us for season three. We want to share, connect, and grow the paper flower community with you. Welcome to Paper Talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Paper Talk. Today's episode is sponsored by our patron, Bonnie Slipper. We appreciate your donation and we're excited to keep creating content for the paper flower community. If you are interested in supporting us, head on over to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash paper talk and sign up as a patron. We would love to see you there. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Paper Talk. Today, we have Bradley Hartman with us. Brad is an intellectual property and corporate lawyer, and he's a partner at Hartman Titus. Welcome, Brad. Welcome, Brad. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. We are so excited to talk to you about this looming issue. I know, we <laughs> really. have so many questions. It's like a cloud <laughs> over our heads sometimes because as artists and crafters, we often really just care about the craft and we really forget about the other part of it. Once we start dipping our toes into selling our crafts and our art, a lot of us just literally like come up with a name and say, oh, I like that name. And then we start like creating a story around it. We <laughs> change all our media, pl- uh, our social media platforms to that name without thinking about any, without even thinking that someone else might be using that name. But also as artists, I mean, there's so many things that we do that when we like kind of release it to the world, we're really releasing our heart and soul. And so we're also very protective of some of that, that part of our soul too, the intellectual property part. We want to talk to you specifically about what your expertise is in, which is intellectual property. So let's start from the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what your specialty is. Sure. Yeah, I, I'm a corporate and intellectual property lawyer. My law firm is in Phoenix. We also have a Washington, D.C. office. And like you said, I focus on intellectual property law. And that's kind of a confusing concept. People understand bankruptcy. They understand real estate. But intellectual property is fairly nebulous. I asked my son the other day, what does IP stand for? And he said, um, international patents or <laughs> industrial products. So even he doesn't quite understand what an IP lawyer is. But intellectual property basically has four different areas. There's patents, trademarks, copyright, and trade secrets. So a patent is basically your invention, like a pharmaceutical and automotive part, some type of useful new invention that you put out there in the marketplace. There's also design patents, which design patents protect the ornamental features of a functional product. So there are a lot of design patents for like furniture, chairs, jewelry, drinking glasses. So it's they're functional products, but they have ornamental features that you can protect with a design patent. So that's patent law. And then there's trademarks. Trademarks are really your brand, your logo. It can be, a trademark can be a slogan. Don't leave home without it. An old, you know, American Express slogan. A trademark can even be a color or even a sound like the NBC chimes. So a trademark is really something you use to identify your products and your services is a trademark. And then copyright protects your creative work. So a photograph, a sculpture, things that you write out, computer code, something to be have a copyright in it is it has to be fixed in a tangible form. So you may have a great idea about a World War II story, someone storming the beaches of Normandy, but you don't have a copyright in that until you actually put it on paper or, or write it up. Then you have something that can be protected under the copyright law. And then finally, there's trade secrets. And trade secrets, you know, obviously the most famous trade secret people talk about is the formula for Coke, although I'm not sure that's really protected that well. But um, <laughs> Coke really focuses on their Trademark is what makes them profitable, not their trade secret. And so a trade secret is anything that you use in your business that provides you with a competitive advantage 
and that you keep secret. So if you have certain pricing lists, a list of potential customers or manufacturing methods, as long as you keep them secret, you can protect them as a trade secret. But keeping them secret means making sure employees find something saying they're going to keep them secret using passwords, things like that. So those are the four areas that we usually talk about when we're focused on intellectual property law. Wow. How interesting. As we're talking about that, I was like trying to slot yeah. certain circumstances. <laughs> and I'm like, does that fit? Does that fit? Um, yeah. Well, for our purposes, we'll focus mostly on trademarks and copyrights, yeah. I imagine. <laughs> Sure. So I know our listener, we're going to hit it right off the bat, is I know a lot of our listeners teach. They teach their paper flower tutorials in workshops. They teach it online through a platform, Teachable or Kajabi or Podia. What are some of the wordings or what can you do to protect yourself? Because I know Jesse and I, we are totally fine with, if you take our courses, you take our online or we teach, you're welcome to make the flowers. You can sell it, whatever. The only thing we're concerned about is the templates and the instructions of how you go about making that. How can we let our followers know, whoever our students know that they can't reuse those templates and those instructions to teach other people or to sell it. Well, sure. Well, I wouldn't be a lawyer if I didn't start with a legal disclaimer. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm happy, to, happy to answer questions, provide some general information, but obviously every situation is unique and the facts will matter and depending on your circumstances. So I hope your listeners will understand that. And if they have specific legal issues to talk to a lawyer and get your own advice. But generally, when we're talking about teaching courses and materials you might use in a course, we're really in the copyright area. You've created some type of creative work, whether it's a course book, whether it's a um, set of templates, or other materials that you can protect by copyright, assuming they're sufficiently creative. There could be an issue if, you're, if your template is just an outline of a leaf, you might say, well, is that creative enough? And there's only so many ways you can draw a leaf. Should you have the only right to create leaf? But if it's a book of templates or it's a template that has many different parts that creates a certain product, then certainly that could be protected by copyright law. So if anyone were to take those templates and copy them and distribute them or try to sell them, that would be violating one of your exclusive rights under the copyright law, which is the right to copy and distribute and publicly display your creative work. Course materials, if you have a course material that has a description of how to make a flower, if it's a, you know, here's steps one through 15 and you've written that out and you provide that to people, those instructions can also be, prote be protected by copyright law because it's your unique way that you've set forth those instructions. The challenge you have though is when it comes to general knowledge that people obtain. So for example, you can't copyright a recipes generally. So there's only a certain way to make certain ways to make chocolate chip cookies. And you can't say, well, I wrote down my recipe and now no one else can use this recipe. And same thing with making flowers. There are certain ways to make paper flowers, certainly many ways to make paper flowers, but it's hard to say that, you know, I have a copyright in this particular step-by-step -step way of making it. Now, if you teach someone a certain method of doing something, and they then have that know-how, again, you, there's nothing in the law that really can stop you, someone from sharing their information like I'm doing here today. Mm -hmm. If I you know, know, if I learn Spanish and then I want to teach someone how to speak Spanish, there's really nothing in the law that would prohibit me from doing that. If I learned how to make a certain flower and I now want to teach someone to do that, I can do that. Now, can I use your copyright protected templates? No. Can I pass out your instructions on course material? No. But that general knowledge I'm free to share with other people. Now, there might be a way to get around that. For example, you could maybe through contract law, and I'm just, you know, again, bringing up some 
top of the head ideas, but contract law, you could say, look, if you sign up for my class and you come and I share this information with you, you agree you're not going to go teach this to someone else. You agree you're not going to go hold your own courses and charge people for that. Or you agree that if you want to teach someone, you're going to license or buy these templates or products from me to do that. And then you have, at least if they do it, you may have at least a contract or something you can enforce, but then you're in sort of the contract law area, not the copyright or intellectual property law area. So going back to the copy. Right. In terms of actually, I mean, you've indicated that the law protects it regardless, right? You have an exclusive right or copyright to the materials you produce. Is it necessary to put in there, you know, the cop? Everyone's like, oh, as long as I put the copyright Jesse Chu 2021, I'm covered. Is that even necessary or is it, it is just kind of a prompt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not necessary, legally necessary, but it is, I think, a good practice. Mm -hmm. So there is for the remedies for copyright infringement under the law, there is a remedy for trademark for copyright infringement. If someone copies your work, makes something substantially similar, and you can prove that it's substantially similar and that they had access to the original, you might be able to bring a claim for copyright infringement. And there are what they call statutory damages. So mm -hmm. It's hard to prove how much you lost by the copying or how much profit they made. So the law provides a range of, of damages that a judge can sort of take all the factors into consideration, decide what should be paid. And if there's willful infringement, person, you can show they knowingly, intentionally took your materials and copied them with full knowledge they're yours. There's an enhanced amount of statutory damages that can be awarded. And so putting that copyright notice on there with your information helps someone argue, I had no idea this was hers. I had no idea she yeah. claimed copyright in this. So it's sort of a good profile measure. And also, if someone sees this and says, you know what, I really like these templates, I'd love to buy these or use them. And it says at the bottom, you know, copyright this person, you may even put, you know, for licensing or permissions, call this number or go to this website or send mm -hmm. this email. It help, might help you also connect with someone who wants to use your materials and then do it the proper channel. <laughs> That's a good idea. I really like that, putting the terms on there. If you want to reuse these templates, contact me and we'll give you the license for it. These are yeah. under copyright law. And if you want to mm -hmm. use them, reach out. Yeah, that's a great. I mean, sometimes it's just educating, right? People yeah. as yeah. well kind of like, oh. Well, I think most people, yeah, I, don't, I think most people don't want to get in trouble or break the law. <laughs> yeah, that too. They, yes, they, exactly. They do it sort of unknowingly. They say, oh, this mm -hmm. is a template. She gave it to me. Of course I can use it. I paid mm -hmm. for this course. Of course I can use this material because mm -hmm. I, you know, went to this class and she shared it to me and why not? And I think yeah. it's just keeping people educated on some of those issues. Yeah. And I think that's the reason why we love having you on this particular podcast is we see it happen quite frequently in our industry because it is a brand new. And I feel like there's a little bit of a gray area and we want to shine some light on it to make mm -hmm. sure that it is clear for everybody because a lot of us are teaching a lot more and sharing our knowledge. And there's so many books out there and tutorials online, free YouTube videos out there. And when we see certain things, we're like, oh, that's so questionable. It's now really nice that we can say, hey, you should listen to this podcast. <laughs> this will give you a little bit of clarity on right. why you're infringing on this. Sure. Yeah. So essentially to protect your copyright rights, there really isn't much that you need to do, correct? It's just if there has been an infringement, then that's when you would have to do something about it. Well, that well, is- Well, not have to, but you could do something about it. You've You've gone right into the perfect area, which deals with copyright registrations. So certainly you have a copyright in what you create. And if you have someone who's infringing your copyright, you can take action to try and stop them. But a very important step 
in doing that is to register your copyright with the U.S. Copyright Office. So in order to actually file a lawsuit in court, you first have to register your copyright with the U.S. Trademark Office. Otherwise, you don't get a ticket into the courthouse. And a copyright registration can take several months to issue. There are some expedited processes if there's litigation going, but those are expensive. So it's a good idea if you have something new, a new course book, a new set of templates or something. You know, the copyright process is, is much simpler than the trademarking process. You basically say who created this work, who claims the ownership of it, when was it first published, and you know, attach a copy of it, upload a copy of it, and send it off to the copyright office. And they examine it, make sure it's sufficiently creative, make sure you've properly answered the questions, and then you get a copyright registration. And so the benefit of a registration, other than getting you into court, is that if someone infringes your copyright after you've registered it, you can seek recovery of your attorney's fees and those statutory damages I mentioned. But if the infringement occurs before you registered your copyright, mm -hmm. you have to prove your damages. You have to prove that you lost money or that they made profit off it. So registering early is really, really important. Mm -hmm. How much is it on average does it cost if someone just did it on their own or they approach an attorney to make it happen? Yeah. So the Copyright Office has an online system for registering copyrights and you could go in there and create an account. And it's it's a little complicated. My clients usually ask me to do it because some of the questions aren't very intuitive and um, there's a lot of sort of nuances to it. But the registration fee, they change them now with the electronic system. I think it's around $50, $55 for filing. And, you know, it's probably an attorney's time figure between talking to you, getting the materials and the information and putting it in, you're looking at maybe an hour of the time. So it's, it's not very expensive. And having that registration can really be an important tool in your arsenal if you end up getting infringed by someone. Mm -hmm. That's a really great idea, a great precaution. Yeah. Realistically, how often do people actually file? So, so that gets to another nuance of copyright law. So I mentioned that as long as you register your copyright before there's an infringement, you can get those enhanced remedies in court. But the law does provide an exception that as long as you register it within three months of your first publication. So you can publish something on April 1st, and as long as you register it by July 1st, you'll be covered for any infringement that might have occurred in the interim, unlike the normal rule where you have to register it first, but there's mm -hmm. a three-month window. So what I typically have my clients do is every three months, register your copyright. Mm -hmm. After you come out with a website, your website, some, some of my clients, they print off their website and register their website content every three months so that any changes that have been made, any new content on the website is registered. But it's certainly a good idea that once you publish something, especially if it's a, a real interesting new novel, rewrite something that you've added a lot of new materials to, to get it registered with the copyright office. But you can copyright, you know, your entire course material. You can copyright just certain templates. You can copyright photographs. You can copyright your website. There's all kinds of different items that you might have to, to be registered with the copyright office. So for example, if we did our courses online, for example, Teachable or Kajabi, is it protected under that big umbrella or do you still need to go do your copyright registration? Well, I'm not sure if those sources you mentioned, Kajabi and those, are those, can you tell me more about that? So it's a large platform where they specifically host other people online courses and mm -hmm. they do have certain legal terms on there. I haven't really deep dive into that Pacific mm -hmm. copyright part, but with a bigger company holding your website, holding your courses, do you need to go about doing the copyright or is are you protected under this big umbrella company that has thousands of people 
already on that particular platform. Yeah. Well, you would still own the copyright in the materials and the work and, and what you produce. Depending on the terms of service with the company hosting your, your broadcast, you could have agreed that they own the copyright in the recording of your broadcast, the video or the audio recording, in which case they, they would be the ones that would want to go register that audio recording so that if someone were to you know take it and redistribute it or display it, they would have a copyright claim. But since they're the ones recording it, be the copyright owner. But if you are providing transfers or assigned the copyright to the course provider, then you still own that copyright and you would want to be responsible for registering and enforcing your copyright. That does bring us to another area of copyright law, which is who owns a copyright. So a lot of people think that if, if I bought it, I own it. And if I hire someone to take off my family photo, I own the copyright in that family photo. Or if I hire someone to write some materials for my course guide, I own the copyright in those materials. But that's not the case. The law is designed to protect the artist. And so the default is that whoever creates it, whoever put pen to paper, fingers to keyboard, button on the camera shutter, they own the copyright in their work. There are two exceptions to that. The first one is if it's an employee acting within the course of their employment. So if I hire you as an employee to do this work, I own the copyright in your work. Or if there's a written assignment agreement assigning the copyright to you. So if you do hire someone to come help you do work, and, and there's often a gray line between is this an employee or is this a contractor? Mm -hmm. And there's a whole long IRS test on that that I'm not going to get into, but it's a good idea that anyone you hire to do creative works, that you get them to sign something saying anything I create, any materials, photographs, web content, logos I design, you, I hereby assign you the copyright in that material. That way you own it. it often happens where you reach out to someone who's infringing, you find someone who's infringing your copyright, you contact them and they say, yeah, I bought this from so-and-so who was the same person you had hired to do it. And since you don't own the copyright, they do, you really can't do anything about it. So you have obviously a right to use what you pay for and that someone provides to you for that purpose that you bought it for, but that doesn't transfer the copyright with it. Okay, switching gears a little bit, let's talk about trademark. Can you tell us more about what trademark is? And then I'll ask my question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a trademark is really anything you use to identify your products or your services. Any type of word, slogan, logo, things like that that you brand yourself with so that other people see you and then they recognize that brand as your company or your products or your services. So trademarking, as they call it, really just means putting your name on something, putting your name on your business, on your website, on your product or your courses. So that becomes your trademark. And by using that trademark, you develop right trademark rights that you can enforce because people have now seen that trademark. They've associated with you and your business and you've developed some goodwill with the legal term for that, some goodwill in that trademark that now benefits your company. So you have something you can enforce. Mm -hmm. So would you also recommend registering your business name or whatever that you need to trademark. Is it officially trademark at that point? Or can you, like, almost like copyright, can you do the TM, mm -hmm. just like the C? Sure. How does that work? So if you're using a name for your business, you can certainly, if you consider it your trademark, you can put the TM symbol next to it. Traditionally, a TM is used for products, for goods, and SM or service mark is used for services, like operating a store. But kind of the nomenclature is most people just use the TM symbol and they don't differentiate between goods and services. But you can certainly say, this is my trademark and let the world know I consider this my trademark. Now, you can't use the little R in a circle with your trademark until you've registered your trademark with the U.S. Trademark Office. And so that involves going through a process with the U.S. Trademark Office where you you know, tell them that you own this trademark. What is this trademark? Or submit a copy of the drawing or the logo that you're using. You tell them what you're using it for. You're selling it products or you're running a website or you're teaching courses. And then you provide some evidence of that use. Here's uh, my course material. Or here's my 
sign at my store. Here's my website where I advertise my services. The trademark office then does a search to look at anything that they think is potential to cause a likelihood of confusion or that your trademark is likely to cause confusion with. So the test under trademark infringement law is whether your trademark is likely to cause consumer confusion as to the source of your goods or services. So the trademark office will look and decide whether they think there are other trademarks that should block your trademark from being registered. And if not, then a few months later, it gets published. Others can potentially oppose it. And eventually you get a trademark registration certificate and you can switch that TM to a Circle R. Perfect. And does that only apply to within, since I'm in the United States, does that only apply mm-hmm. in the United States or does it apply international? Trademarks are territorial. So a U.S. trademark covers all 50 states. If you are going to be using your trademark in any other countries, you will have to go register that there as well. So there are some international conventions and treaties that allow you to extend your trademark registrations into other countries. So there are methods by which you can protect your trademark in other countries after you file it but you cannot go sue someone in Australia that has adopted a confusingly similar name to yours or even your identical name unless you can prove that you already have some rights in Australia, customers in Australia, use in Australia, or you've registered in Australia. Some countries, especially in Asia, they don't even care if you've used your mark there. They go strictly on who's registered it. If you're the first one to register Pepsi, you get to use Pepsi in China. So it's really important, especially if you're concerned about trademark infringement in certain Asian countries to go register your mark right away. Mm -hmm. At what point would you consider, I need to trademark this internationally? Well, I guess it depends on your business plan. So after you've registered a trademark in most countries, it is vulnerable to cancellation at the request of a third party if it hasn't been used for three years in that country. So once you register a mark and three years has passed, people can go in and petition to cancel your registration on grounds that you aren't using it. Mm-hmm. So if you don't plan on using your mark in the next three years in a certain country, you can certainly go register it in many countries without using it and without proving you're using it, but you do take a risk that it might be canceled if you don't use it. Also, trademark registrations can be expensive. The more countries you register it in, there's renewals, there's proof of use that comes up periodically. Um, Oftentimes you have to have local attorneys do the work for you. If it's in a non-English language, get translations. And so it can be an expensive process. So I guess I would say, what's your five-year business plan? Do you really expect you're going to be selling products in these countries? And then if so, it's worth looking into potentially registering your trademark there as well. Because I assume, I mean, if you were to pursue that infringement, would it not have to be in their jurisdiction? It depends on who's infringing. If the infringer is only in Mexico and they're only selling products in Mexico, you would have to have a Mexico trademark registration, mm-hmm. and then you would probably have to have a, a attorney in Mexico go in and either file your lawsuit or at least write those demand mm-hmm. letters to the potential infringer. Yeah. If now if they're shipping products into the United States or they're selling online and there's products going to the United States, then you get into questions of personal jurisdiction and mm-hmm. can you, you know, are they doing enough business in the U.S. that you could draw them in here to answer for their wrongful activity and it gets into a whole separate issue. So you're better off making sure your mark is registered wherever you might want to be doing yeah. business. Oh my God, what a headache if that does happen. Just wondering, back to your question about if I had a trademark in the United States and they are located in a different country and they ship products or do things in the United States, and I can prove that fact, and I'm not trademarked in their country, can I still sue them for doing something in the United States using my trademark name? Well, that's going to depend. I mean, there's a lot of facts to, to consider there, but you potentially, if they're shipping the products in the United States, there's going to be some maybe U.S. distributor, some company in the U.S. that's going to be accepting those products in and, and completing the shipment, or they're probably advertising their product through some type of U.S. company or U.S.-based website. So then arguably, even though the products are being manufactured overseas and shipped from overseas, they're using your trademark in the U.S. to identify these products. Um, There's always the question of can you 
can you get to the real infringer? Are you going to sue the distributor? Are you going to go after the online website operator? It can be tricky and it's a, and it's a real problem. They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but you know, having your brand, you know, a lot of companies, unscrupulous companies, they love seeing interesting trademarks and interesting products. And they, if it's popular and it's taken off and it's not registered yet in their country, they may go register it and start creating knockoffs. And if they register it before you, they may end up having the rights that you can't stop. That is so interesting. I have so many more questions. And if I bet you guys, if you're listening to this and you happen to hear this on the day that this particular podcast launches, which is launching on March 25th, we are going to be hosting Brad on our clubhouse room, Paper Talk. And if you have further questions, this is your chance to ask him. So it would be perfect, you guys. <laughs> so come join us. Free legal advice, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but remember, legal disclaimer. We'll start that off with the room. Yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Just advice, not real legal information. Legal information, yes. Yes. Yeah. March 25th at 7 p.m. at Pacific Standard Time, 9 p.m. Central Standard Time, and also 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So many standard times. Yeah, but anyway, so many. 7, 9, 10. <laughs> <laughs> Brad, do you mind if I ask, this is probably on a lot of paper florists' mind in terms of when they decide on a name. Are there things that they should consider before saying, you know what, this is the name I'm going to choose for my business? Well, I'd say there are two main things you should consider. One is going to be the strength of your trademark, and the other is going to be, is this confusingly similar? Is this likely to cause consumer confusion with other trademarks. So when you look at the strength of a trademark, obviously the more unique your name is, the more different it is from others out there, the easier it is going to be to enforce and the harder it is for someone to say, oh, I accidentally created a similar name. So the trademark law looks at trademarks on sort of a sliding scale of marks that are fanciful, like words like Exxon or Kodak, words that really don't mean anything other than those particular products or services. And then there's sort of generic words. I mean, I can't make a trademark that just says trademark attorney and that's my trademark or flower shop, that's my trademark. Those can't be trademarks. And in between those two, there's a broad range. There's sort of arbitrary marks like Saturn for an automobile. It's a real word, but it has nothing to do with automobiles mm -hmm. or Amazon for a bookstore. And then there's sort of suggestive marks. Those are marks that uh, don't really describe your products, but suggest a feature of your product. Like um, examples are like copper tone for sunscreen. It doesn't describe mm. sunscreen, but it suggests that you could get a nice copper tone from using it. So those are, are good marks as well. Then you kind of get down into what they call descriptive trademarks. So those are marks that describe a feature, function, or characteristic of your product. And that could also mean it's geographically descriptive. It includes your city or the state you're in, or even a surname can be descriptive. A lot of people don't know that McDonald's is a descriptive trademark. Marriott is a descriptive trademark. And so those only function as trademarks, even though they're last names, because we all know who we're talking about when we hear those descriptive trademarks. And that's because those marks have what the law says acquired distinctiveness or secondary meaning through use. So you can have a descriptive trademark. It's going to be difficult to enforce initially, and it may be hard to register, but after you've used it for a while and you can show that people have become familiar with it, or you can show that there's a lot of advertising and publicity and sales and marketing such that people don't think of this as descriptive. They think of it as your company and your product, then you can have some protection. So those are sort of the hardest marks. So a lot of people like a descriptive name. They want people mm -hmm. to know what they do. 
Yeah. They want to be, mm-hmm. you know, Phoenix trademark lawyer because they don't even know <laughs> who I am what I do. And yeah. it's, tempting. it's tempting to do that, but those are not the easiest marks to enforce. So finding something unique to go with it, to put in front of your descriptive name, mm-hmm. creates something unique. And so that's mm-hmm. a good idea. Then, of course, there's finding out is, is there someone using something confusingly similar? So when you file your trademark application, the trademark office will look at any trademarks that are already registered or pending to see if there's something confusingly similar. But they don't look beyond that. So mm-hmm. If you want to register your mark, all the trademark office looks at is what's there in their office to consider. They don't look beyond that. But as I mentioned, just putting your trademark on something gives you trademark rights, even if it's not registered. So you always run the risk that even though you've filed, even though you've registered your mark, there may be someone using the same mark for the same goods or services Mm -hmm. that's not registered. And they could come after you and try to get you to stop your use of that mark or Mm -hmm. cancel your trademark registration. So it's good to do some Google searching, look at some domain names, see what you can learn about them. There are companies out there that, you know, will do a comprehensive search of every trademark registration, database, corporate names, news articles, LexisNexis, Dun & Bradstreet, to find any (laughs) name that's confusingly similar and let you know before you adopt it. If you said, I'm going to spend $100,000 tomorrow to launch a a campaign, I'm going to buy a million dollar Super Bowl ad next week, I'd say, before you spend all that money, (laughs) let's let's really (laughs) dig into and find out if this is a name because nothing worse than being told after you spent all this time and even years using a name that you've got to change it. I say, you know, it's like telling somebody you have to change the name of your 10-year-old son. It's no fun to be told you have to change your name. So it's good before you adopt it to be confident you can use it. There are a lot of services when you file sort of online services you can file a federal trademark application through and they tell us part of this will do a search for you. Mm -hmm. But those searches are often just sort of an exact name search. Mm -hmm. They don't look at common misspellings. Someone might spell express with just an X or crafty with a K and those (laughs) might not show up in a search. So yeah. yeah, you have to be careful and, and do some due diligence on that name. Yeah. Speaking of names, do you recommend that someone name their business after their so the first mm-hmm. and last name? <laughs> yeah, full name. Well, a uh, last name would be considered descriptive. So <laughs> the, the, the trademark office considers surnames to be descriptive. So that could be a problem. But certainly, you know, a first and last name. There are many trademarks that comprise first and last names. A lot of artists, actors, musicians uh, have trademarked their names as a trademark. Sure, if you can show that that descriptive name, you've been using it and people now associate it just with you you and your company and your product, you could arguably obtain some trademark rights in that. When we get really big, Quinn, yes. <laughs> that's how you consider it. Yes. Pre- a little premature. I know. Um, my other question is, for example, what if we get really big, we use our, our surnames and we sell our business and it's our name. At what point can you take, to, is it part of the sale? Can you <laughs> negotiate to say, I get to keep keep my name, you can have the rest of my business. <laughs> well, one thing is going to be who who owns that trademark. So when you apply to the U.S. Trademark Office, are you applying individually for your name that you're using with the business or are you applying in the name of your LLC or in the name of your partnership? And, and is that partnership or that company the one that owns the name? Certainly you can separate your assets. If you sell your business, you can say, okay, I'm selling everything except this sink and this refrigerator. I'm selling everything except this trademark. But certainly I think a lot of buyers, one big asset of a company is going to be its reputation and its name. And they don't want to, I mean, unless you're going to buy the store in order to rename it to a brand you already have may not be interested in the name. Otherwise, they're probably going to want that name to come with mm-hmm. it or at a minimum, an agreement that you're not going to use that name mm-hmm. for a certain period of time so you don't take customers away because they're trying to buy your business, your brand, your customers, your name, your reputation. And they may allow, they may not take the name, they may let you keep it, but they will likely put some limitations on your use of that name. That's great. 
<laughs> we're just you know anticipating <laughs> well one, one, some things i face is you know the, the president of the company says oh i'm going to use this name for the company and and it's a great name but he wants to keep it in his personal name because he loves his name and he wants to take it with him if he ever leaves the company and then of course the company gets in a fight with the president when he mm -hmm. does leave when they suddenly realize you registered this in your personal name wait a second this is an asset of our company people know this is our company yeah you're taking and, and it's a monetary asset it's worth some money sure. brands are valuable mm -hmm. for sure yeah yeah is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like our listeners to know about well one other sort of tangential issue to trademark law is domain names so there's a whole series and i, I keep saying it's recent but i guess it's been 20 some years now since uh, domain names came of fashion. But, you know, a lot of people will have a domain name registration and find out that someone registered a slightly different spelling of their domain name. It's a very popular thing for people to do to either misdirect traffic or steer mm -hmm. people to a competing website. So there are remedies in law to go after people who, what they call cyber squatting, registering domain names that are the same as your trademark or confusingly similar to your trademark or a slight typo in your trademark. It's, you know, it's not as expensive as going through a whole, you know, federal court legal issue, but there's certain administrative remedies remedies to, to go about to try and get that domain name taken back. But I usually tell my clients, you think about variations of your name. You know, if you're going to be bradhartman.com, make sure you also are bradhartmantrademarks.com or bradhartmanattorney.com. If, you know, spell common typos, bradhartman with two ends.com. I get that a lot. So, you know, think about, and for $10 a year, that's about what a domain name mm -hmm. registration costs. It's good to think about variations on your name that you might want to snap up so no one else does. That's a good idea. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a great tip. So going back to copyright, I don't think we ever, uh, I asked you, your rights to copyright, is that territorial as well? Mm -hmm. uh, there is a international convention on copyright that allows you to enforce your copyright in other countries without registering it there. But like in the U.S., where you have to have a registration in the U.S. before you can hit certain damages, it can be difficult to enforce your copyright in those countries unless it's registered there. Obviously, that'd be something you'd want to talk to an attorney IP attorney in that country to say, look, I have this copyright. It's in the U.S. It's registered in the U.S. I'm being ripped off over here. What do I need to do? You know, maybe we need to register it first. Some countries, hey, as long as it's registered in the U.S., we'll honor and recognize that registration. So you don't need to do anything. We'll mm -hmm. send a letter or we'll file your lawsuit for you. So it really depends on the country. Good. Interesting. And I think that, well, before we get into the drinks and listening, um, <laughs> I mean, you've been so helpful. But Thank I know you so that much. Lot, I mean, I know that sure. a lot of... <laughs> A lot of our listeners sometimes are a bit intimidated when they want to reach out to a lawyer, but they're not quite sure what to expect. You know, picking up that phone and sometimes people think picking up that phone, they're going to talk to the lawyer right away and they're going to suddenly I'm on the clock for, you know, every <laughs> single word. So Brad, tell us a little bit about how your office works. So say I have a question, I want to contact you and want to get either get some legal information from you or legal advice. Can you kind of walk us through that process? Sure. And, you know, I usually provide an initial consult consultation for free. I'll give you some time on the phone to talk about your issues and kind of figure, is this something you need my help with? Is this something that you have anything really that you need to worry about? Not all lawyers do that. So it's really mm -hmm. important if you contact the lawyer to make sure you understand. And some lawyers will say, look, I'll give you an hour of my time for a, a certain rate, or I'll give you a half an hour for free. So certainly if you call a lawyer, make sure you ask, you know, what do you charge for an initial consult and make that clear. 
understand too that your lawyers have to run conflicts. They have to make sure that if you're calling them to complain about a business down the block, they have to make sure that you know their, their partner doesn't represent that business or make sure that business isn't one of their current businesses or that trademark isn't a trademark of one of their clients. So understand that an attorney will usually ask up front, tell me, give me your name, your company name, your trademark, who's the other side. And it's, it's confidential. So you don't need to worry that they're going to go, oh, I just got a call from someone. They're coming after you. Lawyers are required to keep those types of communications confidential, even if you haven't engaged them yet. So feel free to, to reach out on that. I guess I'd say the most important thing though, when you finally do talk to a lawyer is to be prepared, go to the meeting knowing, you know, what is the information you, that's important to share? What is it that you're concerned with and what is it you want to accomplish? So again, lawyers are selling their time. And so you don't want to spend the time talking about, oh, you know, my brother and I started this business and then I got mad at him and, you know, he, I kicked him out of the business and we had a problem with our landlord. That's all interesting, but you're just taking away time. And I know a lawyer also so when you're meeting a, a client for the first time, you're considering, okay, you know, what's it going to cost to do this for this client? And if the client talks a lot, gets off track, needs to hear things multiple times, takes a long time to respond to questions, you start thinking this is going to cost a lot more than it should. should. And so you're going to have to pay more because your lawyer is going to realize that this is going to take a lot more of his time or her time than it should. So being concise and being prepared is also helpful. But certainly, you know, the lawyers will help you talk about what your rights are, what your options are, what you can do going forward. And so, you know, I would say if you're having any problems at all, certainly do reach out the bar associations. You can search for lawyers through bar association websites. Usually you have specialties, intellectual property, patent, copyright, whatever issues are. And you may end up with a secretary or a paralegal at first who then wants to run your conflict information and schedule an appointment. And then you get on the phone with someone or you may get lucky and the lawyer answers the phone. And if you caught her at a good time, she's happy to take your call right then and there. So I'd say, you know, lawyers are there to serve the public and to provide information and help people. So don't hesitate to call a lawyer, but do make sure you understand the parameters from the get-go. How much is it going to cost me? And even if you hire a lawyer, some lawyers will do things for a fixed fee. Okay, I'll do your trademark application for this price, or I'll send that letter for this price. Other lawyers will say, oh, it's going to be in this ballpark dollar-wise, or some lawyers will say, well, I charge this much an hour. So make sure you understand their billing arrangements. And if you, you know, want to put a cap, hey, don't spend more than this amount of money. I can't afford it. Or what can we do to, to make this cheaper? What can I do to help this process myself? A lot of times, if you can, you say there's an infringer out there instead of saying it's Joe Schmo company in Florida. And then the lawyer has to go look and dig in and find the website and see what they're doing. If you say, look, here's the website, here's pictures, here's my concern. I've circled the product. It makes things a lot easier and cheaper for you. That's good tips. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. Would you be able to handle cases from like across the U.S. or is because it's federal jurisdiction, right? Right. So I'm licensed in Arizona and the District of Columbia, um, Virginia, but I've done cases in many different courts across the country. So the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is located in Washington, D.C., but we file applications from anywhere. They're processed in Washington. So you can use a lawyer in almost any state to deal with the U.S. Copyright and U.S. Trademark Office and U.S. Patent Office. If you start getting into litigation, we're going to be filing a lawsuit. You're probably going to want to have a lawyer who's licensed in the state where you're going to be filing that lawsuit who knows the law and the rules and the procedures. Even though it's federal law, there's always local nuances in the court systems. If you're going to be doing a contract, you want to sign a contract with someone to do something or you have settlement agreement with someone to resolve something, you're going to want a lawyer in the state where the agreement is going to sort of be enforceable. So you might say in the agreement, this, this contract can be enforced in you know Chicago or in Illinois. You might want to have an Illinois lawyer doing that if that's 
where you prefer to enforce the the contract to make sure that it complies with Illinois law. You don't go to court and someone says, well, who put this in here? We don't do that in Illinois and the contract becomes a mess. So, but, but generally when it comes to copyright patents and trademarks, you can use a word in almost any state. That's great. Thank you so much. All right. Now to the really fun part. So while you're working in your office or now at home, what do you drink? And are you listening to any podcasts, audiobooks, or can you watch TV? <laughs> you watch the news. <laughs> oh, when I'm working, I don't drink, although sometimes it's tempting. You get that client, you hang up the phone and you want to reach for something. But usually it's just some uh, just some coffee from my from my pot, a little half and half in it. Drink a lot of water. And as far as listening, I do, I you know, my music is all over the place. I do some Peloton classes. And usually when I do a class, I hear a song in the background. I'm quickly grabbing my phone and shazamming it and going, oh, what is the song? I like the song. And so that I'm always, I always have new music because I always hear something interesting out there that I, that I save and create playlists and listen to when I'm running or outside or in my office. But it's nice and things that are mellow or helpful uh, in a stressful <laughs> attorney's life. Absolutely. <laughs> I think you're the first person who said <laughs> music from Peloton. That's awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a quick reminder, you guys, if you would love to talk to Brad and ask any specific questions, and if you can't make the clubhouse or you don't have an iPhone to get onto the platform, DM Jesse or myself with your question. We'll make sure to answer it and get back to you with his answer. So clubhouse, make sure you meet with us on Thursday night at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 9 p.m. Central, and 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, Brad. Yeah, thank you. It's been such an informative hour. And yeah, I mean, everything you said just makes sense. You say it so eloquently and you explain it to us in, you know, regular layman terms. <laughs> yeah, I enjoy being here. And, and it's nice to hear that because these are not straightforward, simple issues. These, no. these, these, these they're very, there's a lot of nuances to all this that I tried to, to skim over, but I, I yeah. appreciate you having me Well, on. I think you did a wonderful job. I know the, the area of law is, you know, there's a lot of gray areas, but you've made it so easy for us to kind of digest and think about it. And I'm sure there's going to be tons of questions because I'm just thinking about, oh, did I do that or should I do that? <laughs> Thank you so much for being informative. And we look forward to talking to you again, hopefully, yes. when your podcast is on Clubhouse. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us each week and listening to Paper Talk Podcast. This week's podcast is sponsored by Paper to Profit. In chapter two, we talk about how to market your business. And one of the ways that we suggest is using social media platforms. Quinn, can you tell us a little bit about how to leverage Instagram? So one of the key things about Instagram is everybody knows about the Instagram algorithm, how it changes all the time. And it's so annoying and shadow ban and all those things. So nowadays with doing Instagram for so many years now, I do not think about shadow ban as much because now, of course, my following has grown a lot more. A lot of people have their notification on to make sure that they see my posts. Quinn, do you mind telling us what shadow ban is? So shadow ban is when you use a particular hashtag that is on the ban list. And there's been rumors that shadow ban doesn't happen, but you know what? It does. I've seen it happen. A lot of my friends who does Instagram on a daily basis have seen it happen where you suddenly get 100 likes and suddenly you have six likes. That's when you know you are shadow banned. And they there's a website out there that I think, I forget what it is, but it's if you Google shadow ban Instagram, it'll show up. You put this hashtag in or you put in your handle in and it'll say, yes, you've been shadow banned. And so it locks your Instagram so it doesn't go onto the Explore page. And other people that do commonly see your 
your post, they won't see it. And so that's why, do you know why they do that? I have no idea. I've asked, I've looked around and it's just so weird. Like I know a big one that people that is on the shadow ban list is Valentine's Day, all the major holidays. So you guys don't use major holidays like Christmas Day, St. Patrick's Day. For some reason, all those are banned because I think other Instagram people have used it misappropriately Mm -hmm. and things that should not be on those are cropping up. And so it just makes it bad for everyone else. So just think of creative ways how to go about using those hashtags. So if you want to do Valentine's Day, maybe do V-Day or Sweetheart Day or something along that line that is close to Valentine's Day, but it's not. You can do February 14th. That's not shadow ban. And so think about how that goes. And one of my tricks is I look at the really big people. One of my favorite, favorite people that I use that I look at a lot is Woodlucker and Woodlucker. Her Instagram hashtag, you guys, are amazing. I don't know how she comes out with them, but they're beautiful. They're they're magical because they work with the algorithm really well. Because one of the things that you want to keep in mind when you're doing Instagram is you want to have three really large hashtag that is talking about 500,000 or more. Then you want a good grouping like 10 to 12 that is below the 500,000. So you want pretty much like 80,000 to 400,000 mark. And then you want the rest of the grouping to be under the 50,000 mark. So the little niche one that doesn't have that many following that will show up as you being one of the top ones. So you want a good mixture of all those different types of hashtags to get a good and use all of them. And I always go about, I leave a few extra ones because you get, you're allowed to do 30. So I try to do like maybe 27, 28 and leave a couple extra in case person that comments on my post, they actually use a hashtag and it doesn't ding me. And so what happens when you go over the limit, your post is no longer active, which is so weird. So Instagram needs to fix that. But I do agree that too many hashtags is too, it will flood your post. So, and then another thing is a lot of debate has been going on is, do you put your hashtags in the comment section or do you put your comment on the very first line? This is really interesting, you guys. So I've been doing a test and if you can go back on my post, you'll see that some hashtags are in the comment section and some are actually in the body. And so I just do a test and I look at my insights and I think you should be a creator account or a business account to be able to see the really good business analytics, but track it. I love numbers and I'm constantly, if you look at my, I have a book set aside for my social media, like how many numbers do I have today? How does that post working? So that way I can flip back and see how it's working. How about you, Jesse? I don't have any tricks, to be honest. <laughs> but I post when I can. <laughs> I post I post once a week. And part of it, I mean, I just look at my numbers. I mean, numbers aren't everything, obviously, but some of it is organic as in, you know, just the number of years that you're on Instagram, you will get a minimum amount of followers. Just, it's just what happens time with time (laughs) you get followers. But I also believe in posting consistently. I mean, I only post once a week, but it's consistent and posting your best work. Yeah. I absolutely believe that because, you know, I'll post my work in progress in my stories, but my best work goes in my feed. And if I don't have something to post, I won't post it. So if it's shot in, you know, terrible lighting or it's something I'm not proud of, I don't post it. And I think it served me well because my Instagram feed, although it's not curated aesthetically in terms of, oh, it has the same look, it's curated aesthetically in terms of my art and the Mm -hmm. type of work I want to do. 
And that has consistently brought in followers who like what they see and who like my work. I think that's important. And so if there's something that you're not quite sure about, maybe test it in the stories, see what that looks like. What is the response? And then if the response is great, post it, you know, but otherwise, I mean, I think you do kind of have to, when you are running a business, you do have to kind of figure out what to post and what not to, especially if you're posting once a week like me, because that means that your, your box of nine doesn't move very much. Right. You can't just mm-hmm. show, just keep posting and then your crappy post is at the bottom. It just doesn't work that way. Or archive it. Or ar- yes, or archive it. Archive, let's say you really old posts or posts that you feel, okay, I posted, I want to keep around, but it's not on brand or it's not what I want to do right now. Archive it. Um, Otherwise, I don't really have any special tricks, to be honest. I really believe in doing good work. I really believe if you have beautiful images out, people will interact with you. People will see it. And the more people who see it and the more people who comment, the more it will appear before more people. And that's how you get people to see your work. As you're starting out, don't worry about your feed as much. You really want it to be your portfolio of all your different works. Mm-hmm. Because at the beginning of your business, you want to show your clients that you have a good range of skills. So go ahead and put things out and then take a look, maybe three months or six months down the road. It's like, oh, I think I'm done with this photo. Archive it, clean it up so it looks really pretty. But when you are just building your business, do dark flowers, do moody flowers, do light and airy, test it out, see what people, your followers like, because that's the best way to find out who your clients are. Mm-hmm. And, and who is commenting. I think that's really important in having that dialogue. Don't just post. Make sure you reply back. If anyone just gives you emoji, say thank you because they're boosting your, your post up. So mm-hmm. if you get spammers, just say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't delete it. Just post it up. Because the more comments you have, the more they're boosting your comment up. So yeah, yay. That's true. <laughs> Taking a different twist of luck on that. <laughs> Everyone gets those spam posts. It's fine. Yes, <laughs> you exactly. don't need to be ashamed of it. <laughs> yeah. If you want to know more about Paper to Profit, head to our website, www.papertalkpodcast.com and sign up for the wait list. And the doors to Paper to Profit will open on May 10th. We hope to see you there. If you're looking for a way to support us, please hit subscribe and write us a review. We would appreciate it so much. You can also support us as a patron on patreon.com. Your contribution would help us continue to create great content for you and the paper flower community.